The people that we see that are most successful are people where someone wants to be learning it from this person. It's not just that they want to learn gardening or React. They want to learn it from this person who they've been following for a while. You need to sort of figure this, you need to get like the first like 50 people who want to learn from you. And then hopefully if your content's good, they'll tell other people and then it becomes sort of word of mouth. I think oftentimes people get stuck trying to come up with some like perfectly tailored niche. I'm a programmer. I was also raised Quaker. I could teach like programming for Quakers, but there's like 50,000 Quakers. I like probably shouldn't do that. But like if it was able to get me to like 10 or can expand past that, that might be fine. Uh, so it's just like it's finding that differentiator for your first like couple dozen students. You're listening to Ecomonics, a Debutify podcast, your resource for one-of-a-kind insights into the world of e-commerce and business in the modern age. This is Joseph. I'll be presenting a wealth of industry knowledge from interviews with successful business people and our own state-of-the-art research. Your time is valuable, so let's go. Teachable.com is one of the educational platforms we learned about in recent weeks. Without trying, we ended up having a whole run of them. So capping off the unofficial education week is Chief Technical Officer Noah Pryor. In this episode, we compare the Teachable platform to the other platforms we looked at, Skillshare and Udemy, and find that Teachable prioritizes the teacher first and foremost and keeps their own presence as a platform to a minimum. As always, I recommend listening to the show in order. A heavy ask, but assuming you have and you've gotten to this point, I think you'll walk away from today's episode with a much clearer idea of where you want to teach and where you want to learn. No prior, it is good to have you here on Ecomonics. How are you doing today? How are you feeling? I'm doing pretty well. Excited to sort of get into 2021, ramping back up into work. Excited to talk to you. Yeah, I'm feeling I'm feeling good about this year. It's, uh, I'm I'm good. Uh, last year was hard, but it was transformative. You know, I managed to find this new job position, managed to move into a new place. So silver, it was a silver lining year for me. And uh, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to a better 2021 overall. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for asking that. Now, first question I got to uh, hit you with. Same question I get to get to everybody. It's the most important one, debatably, but feel free to, if anybody takes an opposite position on that, podcast at debutify.com. So who are you and what do you do? Yeah, I'm Noah Pryor. I'm the chief technology officer at a company called Teachable. We're in, in the sort of online education e-commerce space. We help sort of individuals monetize their expertise, either through online courses or coaching and or coaching, I suppose. Total coincidence, but for our, our listeners who've been listening in order, I guess this is unofficially like education week because the previous guest was uh, uh, was knowledgeable on Skillshare. Then the one before that um, was a teacher on Udemy. So we're, uh, we're, we were just, I don't know. I don't know how it happened. We all just wanted to get to all of the uh, educational sector uh, all in one go. Um, this being an introduction of your company to our audience, um, it's a common question, but it's fair to ask. So what is the the overall mission of Teachable? I know you kind of like just gave us the the, the very brief seed of it, but um, what is Teachable's goal? What do you want to accomplish in the long run and the short term? Yeah, I mean, the, I guess, pithy phrase is helping creators monetize their expertise, but really we want to let people who have something they're passionate about, uh, something they're good at, uh, make a living off of teaching it other people. So we're not really focused on like the K through 12 market or universities or anything like that. We have a couple, but just kind of coincidentally, it's not something we aim for. It's really mostly sort of individuals and maybe businesses built around individuals who have something they're really passionate about, be it 
creator teaches people how to deal with copper deficiencies in your miniature goats, and that goes really well. So it can be like very niche. Uh, some people, you know, teach how to program React, or there's a lot of you know uh, drop shipping courses and stuff like that as well. But it really runs the the gamut. One part of it I'd like to focus on specific is how a platform like this begins to build trust and credibility. Um, I guess for both its users and its creators, because when it first starts up, I know from the history of the internet, there's, especially when we're talking to a lot of the people in the job shipping space, there was that first wave of like internet gurus who had all the answers and they were walking around in their, in their mansions and that burned a lot of people on it. And that trust has taken a long time to regain. So uh, what was it like for you guys? Yeah. So we really sort of, I guess, initially kind of positioned ourselves as being instructor or teacher first. I think we go with creator now, sort of the new lingo, but really... Uh, and a lot of our initial momentum actually came out of sort of frustrations with people teaching on Udemy. Like Udemy is a great platform. Lots of our customers still use it as well. But with sort of marketplaces, you end up classically, and this happened, you know, with arguably eBay and every other marketplace too, you end up with, in a situation where once you get big enough, you don't really care about the creators, the sellers anymore. Like, because you're like, hey, we've got 10 million people with their credit cards entered. We're going to put your stuff in front of it what are you going to do? You're going to come and you're going to use us. So like you can't contact your students to recommend another course to them. You know, it's, you don't lose control over your pricing and sort of uh, maybe it's hard to export your content and stuff like that. So we sort of always from the beginning, like you can export, they're your students, they're not our students. So sort of our philosophy. So we don't, market mm -hmm, to the students think. directly that was another sort of big thing that would really frustrate people is you would sign somebody up for your photoshop course like intro to photoshop and then you'd get like a bunch of their students would all get like 95 percent off coupons for other photoshop courses rather than your advanced photoshop course uh which is rough as a creator yeah and i guess it's more of a lateral move because now they're just learning courses with equivalent uh, skill sets rather than moving forward and progressing to like a higher degree of expertise yeah, it's harder to like build up on a, like a foundation of knowledge if you don't really have any reason to think that somebody's going to take more than one of your courses. Uh, so we've always, yeah, I mean, we've always been able to like export all of your content, export all of your students. We take sort of a, a smaller fee structure and have worked over time to like try to reduce the amount of time we're holding the money. Uh, when we were starting, we ended up having to hold people's earnings for like 45 days to support a 30-day refund policy and so forth. And that's terrible. Nobody wants to wait 45 days to get paid. So now that's like two or three days and it's sort of a, a much closer system. So there's, I guess, primarily, I mean, other than being sort of transparent to our customers, we try to make it so you don't have to trust us as much. Like trust that, you know, we're going to charge the right amount of money and we're not going to lose your content. But like, if you wanted to take your business elsewhere, uh, you would be able to feel like it's sort of a nicer philosophical. You can either try to like build uh, you know, retention by making it really hard for people to leave you or making it really easy for people to get data in and out so that, you know, you can use Teachable as your central hub, connect with a bunch of other services. Um, and that also means that, you know, if you want to leave, you can. Mm -hmm. So the, there's a thread that uh, opened up there. And actually, one thing I'd like to tell you, too, um, I might have mentioned this in an email that I sent you uh, some time ago about how um, when I was brought on to this company, um, my uh, my boss and mentor, uh, Ricky Hayes, he has a course on Teachable. It's uh, Ecom Lifestyle University. And he took me through it because he needed me to understand uh, how this, uh, you know, how this all works so that I can conduct these conversations. And when you're saying about how you guys take a, a backseat um, and let the creators uh, be put first versus how I think Udemy is is brand focused first. Um, so I think there's there are strengths and weaknesses to both sides. Um, so one of them is the overall trustworthiness of the institution of Udemy. Um, you do expect that there is an overall um, average of, of quality to it. Mm -hmm. 
um, just because of the uh, of the platform and the, and the community that's sprung up over it. Um, whereas I think what happens here, and of course this is your is your business, you can tell me if I'm way off, but I think that the the credibility does fall on the individual creators um, more prominently because they're the ones that are putting themselves first. I'm not going to uh, teachable.com slash here's my course. I'm going to here's my course.com slash teachable. That's completely correct. Uh, it's much more sort of your credibility and less teachable. I would guess probably half to two thirds of the students that use teachable uh, or use take courses on teachable uh, are not aware that it's a, a teachable platform. Like you'll see our domain on sort of like the checkout and login pages, but you can completely white label everything. Uh, we're much more in the backseat. Uh, we are experimenting now with like Teachable Discover uh, and sort of ways of having an opt-in centralized marketplace to sort of promote people, but then the the promotions take you back to the individual schools pages. You don't like consume it within Discover, uh, and that's still pretty nascent because that is the, that's the other big benefit you get from a Udemy and so forth is that the audience is already there. You don't have to bring your own audience. It does sound like it does put you guys in um, in, a, in a in a fun scenario that's a bit of a puzzle to figure out because you want to um, put the creators first and let them do the promotion, but you also have your own content. I found your YouTube page. I found your Instagram. And so I guess people are funneled in different ways. If they find you, then they're funneled towards the creators. Uh, but if they find the creators, I don't, I don't, it doesn't, I'm not sure if they're, they're funneled towards uh, teachable in any meaningful way because they're, they're kind of like, they're, they're sticking with the creator. So it sounds to me like the end point is always going to be the creator. And if you find a way to entice people to come to join the platform, then they can look around and see what they can find, which is kind of like what I was trying to do too. I was trying to like, Okay, how if I'm if I'm a, a student here, how am I going to look for what, what's interesting to me on there? And podcasting in specific is kind of like what frame of reference I was going by. Yeah, there's not great discovery right now. It's pretty hard if you find one podcasting course you like to find another one by a unrelated instructor by virtue of it being unteachable, um, which is you know helps prevent like brand dilution, but also means you have to do sort of more work. So like one thing we've talked about and are like looking into doing is ways to sort of help people like cross promote their courses between different schools. So like maybe you as a podcast teacher know another good podcast teacher or somebody who's like a great course on OBS or something like that, the like audio tool used for podcasting and have a way to sort of like cross promote and have like their course show up on your school and vice versa in exchange for like a revenue share. Uh, so then it's not quite as much just like anyone else who put anything with Photoshop in the name on Udemy, um, but more sort of like blessed from the uh, creator since Presumably, that's where like the trust is with the uh, the purchaser, with the student, is with the creator, and not so much with Teachable. And, and by the way, I'm sorry if, uh, if that sounded like a criticism whatsoever. It was no, just not like at all. my my observance yeah. of like what, yeah, because everyone's in in different positions and are facing different challenges. Um, so from your YouTube page, there's a lot of areas where people can market their courses. Uh, there's LinkedIn, Meetup, so various social medias, Reddit forums. Um, there's a couple that even with all the people that I've talked to so far, I, they've completely eluded my radar. Um, so can you, uh, is there anything you can do to tell us about inbound SlideShare or the, it's also referred to as like potential discount websites. I really don't know anything about those. Hmm. I mean, inbound SlideShare I've seen more, it's just kind of just like one form of content marketing, more or less it's similar to, uh, you know, you might do a Forbes post or something like that, but just sort of creating with the, I guess the benefit that it's, it's more easily resharable. Often nobody wants to make their own slides. So you publish something on SlideShare and somebody will like incorporate some of that into their deck internally or use it as a reference. Uh, I'm not sure on the latter one you're talking about. Sorry. A okay, no worries. Videos back on our channel. Yeah, no, no worries. For, for courses where there's a lot of competition, how, uh, how does someone find a way to distinguish themselves among other teachers? The people that we see that are most successful are people where someone wants to be learning it. 
from this person. It's not just that they want to learn gardening or react. They want to learn it from this person who they've been following for a while. Sometimes that's because it's a like, uh, I don't know, maybe it's they have a, an identity there. Uh, they agree with so we have like a black business school and a couple others that are focused on sort of like building wealth in black communities, which is, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know how different the content is than other sort of financial literacy things, but it's, it's tailored to sort of a specific demographic so that that can work um, or people who are teaching sort of programming from like specific non-traditional backgrounds, like you're coming from being an analyst or sales and so forth. But really, like, it's just you need to sort of figure this. You need to get like the first like 50 people who want to learn from you. And then hopefully if your content's good, they'll tell other people and then it becomes sort of word of mouth relatively quickly. Like you don't need to. I think oftentimes people get stuck trying to come up with some like perfectly tailored niche. Like I'm a programmer. I was also raised Quaker. I could teach like programming for Quakers, but there's like 50,000 Quakers. I like probably shouldn't do that. But like if it was able to get me to like 10 or 15 people and then I could expand past that, that might be fine. Uh, So it's just like it's finding that differentiator for your first like couple dozen students. I think this is the first time that uh, Quaker was uh, was brought up on the show. Um, If you don't mind me asking, like what being in Canada, like obviously it's hard to pull my eyes away from what goes on in the States, but I'm not sure exactly like how you characterize yourself as that. And I know this isn't too e-commerce related, but if you don't mind, I'm just kind of interested in pulling this thread. I mean, it's a, I guess fringe Christian religion, more or less. It's one of the peace churches. So everyone is, uh, pacifism is one of the big tenets. And honestly, that's really about it. There aren't that many other rules. Uh, they were a lot more popular when there was a draft and there was reasons for people to join to avoid the draft primarily. Okay. Fair enough. Because for, I mean, for, for those of us who, um, who, who maybe haven't heard that term before, we just think of like the, uh, the oatmeal. So, yeah. um, so we're, we'll get back into, uh, more of, uh, some of the other, um, insights into teachable. I also, found some stuff on say Instagram or on Twitter that I think would be fun to uh, run past you. But we're going to put that aside because what I would want to talk to you about too is, you know, your own, uh, uh, your own background and your experience in the educational system, because I've talked to the other two uh, guests who uh, also had um, interesting insights to say about education. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, what, what were some of like the major things that stuck out to you th- uh, throughout your, uh, uh, throughout your going through school? I feel like I was really bad at school. I was not, I liked learning a lot. I was read a lot. And I mean, I'm a, a self-taught programmer. I haven't taken any sort of comp sci courses. I was an econ major in college, thought I wanted to be a banker at the time, then talked to a bunch of bankers and realized I did not, and they did not want me to be a banker. So sort of took a different path there. I mean, generally, I don't know. I always found that I can learn learn best when it's applicable to something I'm doing. So like, I'll take a programming course on like how to make a Rails application or something like that and get like five chapters in and be like, all right, I think I can make my own application and then go try to like port the lessons over and found the sort of like, I think that's one of the things I really like about like online education is you can jump around too, which is something, I don't know, we're often reinforcing to our customers is like, it doesn't, even if they didn't finish a hundred percent of their course, like there's lots of courses that I've taken 30% of and gotten huge returns on investment out of the time I spent on it. But the sort of like self-directed stuff and being able to find a bunch of different perspectives on something. It's something I've always found a lot better outside of school. I don't know. I mean, I didn't really go to class in college, which was super dumb. I realized the moment I left, but I've always primarily done more self-directed learning, either from like books or online courses and videos and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, same with me for the most part. I I don't know, for me, elementary school and high school, there's some, there's some moments that stick out that are positive, but for the most part, it was a nightmare. And I'm, I'm, I'm with people that, some I get along with, but many, many of which I don't. And not only did I, is there a lot of stuff that I can't retain, but 
um, there's also a lot of negative associations with some of the lessons that I, that were being taught. Like there's, I tend to like, kind of like repel away from, um, from mathematics because I have some pretty bad memories associated with stuff that went on in mathematics class. For those of you in high school right now, if you can choose between applied and academic, just pick academic. It's going to be harder, but <laughs> just do it. Uh, one of the things that, like, one of the things that goes on, um, in the in the in the institutions, and this is kind of like a predictive question, so don't feel like you know you have to nail it or anything like that. But it's, I'm just curious to hear what you have to say about it. Where there are a number of professions and vocations that are uh, firmly rooted in the institution, you have say like engineering, you have medicine, uh, you have a lot of degrees where those people they have got to have they have to go through that system because there's nowhere else where you can earn that kind of legitimacy. From maybe what, what you see on, on your end, are you seeing any possibility down the line that the um, these professions will have break free from these institutions and people can even start getting doctorates or engineering degrees uh, in online courses? I don't know. So I guess there's sort of two things you're buying uh, when you're buying a degree from a university, or at least two. Uh, we'll caveat that. So I mean, one of them is sort of like access. Like if you want to be a surgeon, you need somewhere presumably where you can like cut bodies up and practice on them. And you probably shouldn't be doing that at home. Like sort yeah, of sir. freelance <laughs> surgery practice seems like kind of a bad call. Or even, you know, if you want to become a civil engineer, you probably don't have, I don't know, bridge parts at home, like whatever it is you need to sort of like practice building like large ship structures. I think and then so there's sort of the access, like the actual learning you're getting, which may sort of require sort of hard to find or expensive things. And then there's sort of the uh, the credentialism, the like institutional credibility. So like I was a terrible student, but I went to Columbia and I benefited enormously from having an Ivy League degree. Like I don't know, it probably would have been harder for me to switch over into engineering, even if I hadn't had that sort of like seal being like, ah, this guy's probably kind of smart. He can like maybe switch over. Mm-hmm. So I think there are places where that's probably more important, like Maybe in law, I think there's there's a certain or like even in sort of like hiring like big accounting or auditing firms, like a lot of what you want to do is you want to be like, we hired these credible people. Look, these other institutions think they're credible. If it all goes terribly, like, you know, no one got fired from buying for buying IBM was like the old tech phrase. I think you do see a lot of that sort of dismantling in like software engineering, where you basically just need a computer, especially in like newer fields, like, uh, I don't know, all of the sort of people I respect, or almost all the people I respect most in sort of application security and things like that, I don't think any of them have any formal training in it, just because the training programs are relatively new, and it's like a fast-moving field. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think for things where what you're actually able to do is what's most important, we will sort of continue to see it devolve. Um, but like those are places where like the stamp is less important because you can look at sort of the output, whether it's the their projects they did at Harvard or their like you know test projects from a Udemy course and so forth. Um, I'm I like I'm optimistic long term. I think the like gatekeepers are pretty powerful. There's also I guess around sort of like medicine and law. It's effectively a cartel. Like they're also just limiting mm-hmm. the supply. Mm-hmm. There's like 12 new dermatologists a year in the United States or something like that. So dermatologists make an enormous amount of money. Maybe that's because skin is so hard that only 12 people can figure it out. But I suspect that like a lot of it is just sort of a industry group protecting their own supply. So like that's harder to deal with just by being better and free and online. Um, but I, I think we'll see the sort of, yeah, valuation faster in some areas than others. But Yeah, that that, that is an important point. Like um, 
I, I, I think by the time that uh, a surgeon could potentially learn any, anything from the comfort of their own home, by that time, the robots would probably have taken over anyways. Yeah, I guess so, it could be like AR surgery rooms and so forth or VR. Yeah, but e- even so, uh, there's very little that you can do to fully replicate. I mean, the you yeah. know, a, a human cadaver or I, I suppose it's not a cadaver if the surgeon is good at their job, so... There's another thread, too, that, sorry, I was about to say threat, no, thread that uh, also uh, unraveled in my mind as you're describing. Because one of the other things, too, about education, this has always been like my major sticking point with uh, especially the institution. I I get into more like, you know, grade nine, uh, K K to eight and and high school because I've been through those where I think, especially for uh, youngsters, the perception is I got to get through this. And then I'm free. And then uh, the, my learning is over. And now my, my life begins. And and that's just not life. It, it, it's just not. Life and learning are two constants. Even me entering my 30s, I, I thought like the major chunk of my learning was over and I'm dead wrong. It turns out that actually like most of my learning is now actually before me rather than behind me. So when you get into, uh, say like, a, again, with surgeons or with engineering, there are basically every industry, especially in IT, there's always new things to learn. So um, what I'm wondering is if maybe there is room for uh, the continued part of it where maybe they don't have to necessarily go back to a university to continue working on new bodies, but there's ways to further their education once that base has been laid out. Yeah, I think, I mean, definitely for engineering, it's basically a requirement. I mean, we have our engineering team spend at least sort of like 10% of their time on kind of professional development stuff, like really even outside of like you need to learn how this database works so you can build this new feature using this database, but just sort of more generic staying abreast of the environment. I mean, I would say, especially, I don't know, other industries as well, especially for like computer science, the like universities are sort of spectacularly bad at that. Like they'll teach you sort of algorithms and data structures and things that have kind of stayed the same forever. But like until recently, you know, most universities were teaching their intro courses in C, which was, you know, programming language that came out in like 1976 and like 1% of professional programmers use in their day-to-day jobs. Um, And I'm honestly a little bit skeptical that like those sort of foundational things are really that core to sort of day-to-day work. I don't feel like when I was, you know, programming rather than managing professionally, I was like hitting tricky algorithms questions on a daily basis, though. It, it was easy to have sort of, I guess, imposter syndrome early on. If like, ah, if only I'd gone to university for this, then I would just mm-hmm. be like solving this problem immediately. But really, I think it's it's almost all about like the continuous learning. And I feel like that's broadening outside of like, maybe it was there a little bit earlier in programming, but that's affecting like e-commerce is changing a lot too. Like most sort of business stuff, the pace of change seems to be accelerating. Yeah, I, I I say jokingly where some of these things they start to move at quantum speed, but I'm, I'm, I'm I I use that as a way to uh, remind myself that um, you know every day I'm going to wake up there are going to be a lot of significant changes in it, and so uh, there's no reason for it not to. Things are moving at the speed of light, and we have the internet, we have technology, we have all this stuff. It's it's fascinating, and it certainly gives everybody the opportunity to get as far ahead as they as they're capable of. Um, I find as with, with the emergence of this online learning now and with a lot of uh, collaborative education too, one of the things I was going to ask you about is your GitHub page. So we'll transition switch uh, briefly into that too, is that once, once everyone's involved in the industry, everyone is helping each other out. In the e-commerce space, that's totally how things are going. Uh, everybody's got their YouTubes. Everybody wants to share the information. People are getting together on Facebook pages. And it, and it seems like, you know, 
the 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 industries where people are just trying to be protective and retain the information are are few and far between now. There's uh, as of this week so far there's dermatology and river fishing or fly fishing, and those are the only two that I know about. Yeah, I know. I mean, like it can often sort of day to day feel kind of exhausting, but I mean, I think it would be better than the alternative if they're not being new things. And it's also like a nice. It means you're not screwed because you didn't go to the right school to learn the right things 10 years ago or like last year because like that information is not going to be relevant in three years. Like there's sort of opportunities for new entrants all the time or new people getting into the space, which I think is great. Yeah. And, and, and time is relative too. So there are different parts of the world. You know, you, you go to where people are still living in like stone houses or, or yurts or stuff like that. You know, if you, if you, if you don't want to move forward, there are places that are actually like vacuums where they just remain in like the 1800s, 1700s, just stuff like that. So yeah, I dug around a bit just to see what you've been up to. And uh, I found your, like, I, I went to your website and it's uh, hilariously efficient. I'll say it's one way to put it. Yeah. Very fast. So, so I found your GitHub page and I don't know anything about it and we can't, there's only so far we can get into the technical side of it. Um, but I still think it's cool to ask about just in case uh, anybody is like, They've got their own programming edge, and maybe they don't—they haven't heard of it or something like that. So, um, can you tell me, like, what what goes on there? Is like, is it like an open sharing system where you're teaching each other uh, coding practices or sharing templates? Like, what is it all about? Yeah, so I guess at its basic level, GitHub. So Git is a—I'll try to keep this really bare bones—is sort of version control management system. It's for like tracking changes in code. Basically, it's it's a lot easier than doing it with like a Word document because you can break code up by line. So it's relatively easy to see like, oh, a new line was added. Whereas like, you know, if you add another sentence to a paragraph, it would mess up all of the sort of later lines. Um, so it started as kind of a place for just people to upload their code. Uh, it's sort of all open source by default. So you can search in, through millions or billions of repositories and see other people's code, which is often really useful for learning. If you're like trying to integrate with an obscure service, you can find the two other people that have ever integrated with that obscure service and like see how they did it. Uh, and over time, I guess it's kind of become more of a social network around it. So you can like star favorite different repositories to keep an eye on them. So I've been like looking at, I guess the most recent one I looked at was a thing to try to make sort of like clever requests to see whether or not an email is valid for like list building where it like starts sending an email. And then as soon as they're like, yes, this is real email address, it stops sending the email. And that way you don't have to like the email confirmation stuff. So it's kind of cool to figure out sort of new techniques and things around that. Um, a lot of the sort of big open source projects are kind of built in the open. I guess they're all built in the open, but are like actively requesting new contributors. So it can be a really good way to break into the industry uh, by the like flag. There's sort of open source issue tracking for everything. So you can see something and be like, oh, I could add that. Maybe it's just a documentation improvement or like a small change to an existing feature, uh, which looks great on resumes. But I think overall, it's just, there's just so much code there that it's a great way to learn because you can go find 500 people who have tried 500 different ways of doing the thing you're trying to do. And like 40 of them will be like horrible and just the worst approach in like ways it didn't even occur to you that anybody could figure out. But then there'll probably be like 10 or 12 that are doing it in some like much more elegant way than you would have thought of on your own. And so it's great too. So I can imagine in your position where, you know, you're, you are working on something related to the website and you're stumped and then you can head over into GitHub and you can see how other people, maybe everybody's stumped and now it's time for everybody to work together to figure out a solution or somebody did find a solution, but they're not going to like immediately just take that and run with it. They need to uh, analyze it and see what goes on there. 
you don't you don't you don't hear about the this too often in in programming that there is a, a high degree of social element to it. You know, you, we usually hear not that it, most people are locked in the rooms now, but for the most part, um, us uh, as nerds, I'm creative nerd, but I'm still spending like ninety five percent of my time in my room even before quarantine. Yeah, no, it can be very collaborative. So I mean, I guess concrete examples. So when we were starting Teachable, which uses kind of a similar backend architecture to Shopify, I spent tons of time just like reading all of the code that Shopify had made open source and public, especially around like their theming system to try to figure out how we should build ours. It was great because you could you can go back in time so you can see what they started with and then you can find the issue where somebody's like this straight up doesn't work for category pages and then you can like sort of see what their new architecture is and like hopefully avoid making all those mistakes yourself. Uh, and then you'll see like reference like Zendesk also uses a similar system and there's some like communication back and forth there where like you'll see sort of people who work at Zendesk or people who build themes for Zendesk and people who build themes for Shopify like talking to each other in the comments and being like, oh, this approach loads twice as fast or what have you. I'll, I'll ask you one more question about it and then we'll we'll switch back into uh, some other stuff about Teachable. But um, <laughs> I, I'm so sorry, I can't believe I'm asking this. But do things ever get like clicky or does like social, does the social side of it ever start to like actually uh, affect the work? I haven't seen it within companies. It definitely can in sort of like big open source projects. Uh, so like Ruby used to have, I think there's some acronym for it, but it's like we are nice because Matt's, who is the creator of Ruby is nice, which sort of got like embedded really heavily everywhere to try to be more like open and welcoming uh, other sort of lower level languages. Uh, a lot of stuff around like Linux has a reputation for being very clicky. Uh, they're, they're working on that where like, if you don't get stuff, you know, in exactly the right number of spaces before everything, like Linus Torvalds, the guy who made Linux will like send you a 500 word email about how your code is bad and you should feel bad. But I think generally like there's, there's been a big push for sort of codes of conduct and stuff like that, which has helped a lot. Though there's sort of, and there's some distinguishing between like somebody just posting clearly being like, please do my homework assignment for me, or like you want to be terse right, versus yeah. like someone who is, you know, acting in good faith, but maybe just doesn't know the norms of the community. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of that has to do with, I mean, you always get people who come in, they don't know any better, but depending on the the legacy of that platform, um, the more like unrefined it is or the less knowledgeable people are about it, the less popular it is, the more likely someone's going to come in and try to uh, uh, game the system. I'll tell you a quick story. So I was for a little while trying to like market myself as a writer on Fiverr. And this one person put out this this assignment where I want to uh, do a, a children's book about becoming a doctor. And so I, I write this like very brief. So, so, so Timmy stands up and says, I want to be a doctor because I want to help people. Um, and I can go off into many uh, different ways of, of helping people depending on what I'm good at. The guy gets back to me and says, no, no, that's not, that's not what I wanted. I wanted, Timmy stands up and says, I want to be a doctor. And then he lists what was clearly his assignment <laughs> where like you break down what is, what, what, what is like, uh, it's, it's been a while, so I don't remember the details of it, but anybody who reads that and goes, okay, this guy is like in high school or university or something like that. And he's just trying to like pawn off his, uh, his homework onto me. Yeah, you see a lot of that on the Stack Overflow sort of a companion site to GitHub a Q&A from programmers, which is a, a big reputation for that. You see a big like burst of terrible questions every September as people start school and so forth. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. All right, so let's, uh, let's switch back to Teachable because uh, there's some other insights into it that I'm really curious about. Um, so this one's from the Instagram. Uh, it says in 2020, uh, two creators made over $10 million. That's pretty good. 56 making over 1 million, also pretty good. I, maybe I should have said something better than pretty good because, well, you know, 823 made over 100,000, which is also uh, pretty darn good. On your end, I'm wondering like what level of uh, data collection aggregation falls onto 
uh, your plate. So um, hopefully we can get uh, some insights from you on this. Yeah. Do you have any insights on hand as to like who made uh, like the $10 million mark and who are doing the most well right now and well, you know, what, why they're doing it so well? Uh, I don't know if I can share sort of like exactly the, the names of who the different people are. Um, okay, that's fine. I think there's that's fine. sort of one round investments. Uh, one of the sort of perennial top sellers is a like, it's not feng shui, but it's similar enough. It's Chinese metaphysics that I don't know the distinction, which is not what I would have suspected would be like a top seller. Usually I think of the things that were like, at least a lot of our sort of initial courses were primarily things where people would be like, oh, I see how I can buy this course for $100 and use it to make 100 times 10 dollars in my personal life either by like learning this new skill or like developing this business thing and so forth so it's been interesting to see the sort of more i guess lifestyle ones i mean maybe people are buying metaphysics for that reason i don't know but like the sort of yoga and classes like that rise to the top i mean generally they are people with sort of strong personal followings they usually it's very rare i mean some of the people in the hundred thousand category fit this but for the like million and ten million Courses are definitely not the only thing they do. They either have a like popular blog or following outside right. of that, or sometimes they are converting in-person stuff into online courses. And we saw a lot of that this year for obvious reasons. Uh, have you have you seen any? And and you know, I, I feel like the more questions I ask, the more likely we'll we'll be able to figure out who these people are. So congratulations to anybody who does that. But um, have you seen any distinction between the free content that people at this scale are putting out versus the content that they're that they're teaching? Like how they're funneling, say, people on their YouTube channel. What is it they're giving there that funnels people into a paid program? Yeah, they generally do. A, I mean, it can be sort of hard to do sort of like cause and effect because they're successful, so they have a lot more sales. Um, but generally, they tend to be a lot better at sort of repackaging content in different ways. So they won't just sell one course. One thing we've seen sort of a lot of people having success with uh, over the last couple of years is sort of like cohort-based things. So they will effectively just like re-release the course with the same content once a month. But gather like, you know, the 50 or 100 people who sign up then into a cohort and do sort of like discussion items and sections about them. It's sort of just a way to scale yourself. Um, Some people sort of go the other approach and they just charge really high price points. So they'll charge like four grand to have a bunch of one on one time with them. But if you can charge, you know, like a couple hundred dollars. um, So still not super cheap, like a lot more expensive than you would have on a Udemy and then offer sort of access to other people going through the cohort. Uh, A lot of people. I've had a lot of success with that. Other than that, yeah, I mean, the repackaging snippets of the courses to YouTube and Instagram and so forth, it's probably not a revelation to the audience, but does work very well. Um, also, the sort of the free course lead-ins. Uh, so you do kind of a mini course with a couple hours of content tops and then use that as a way to like build trust and then sell them the sort of more detailed, more comprehensive thing later on. Often one thing people will get, which they're like kind of surprised by there is they'll get a lot of referrals out of the, the free section and getting people that didn't even necessarily take the free course, um, buying the paid one because their friend took the free course and mentioned it to them and was like, Oh, you know, you're learning something about email marketing. I know this really good guy about email marketing and like maybe the free course covers everything with the, or like the eventual purchaser already knows everything in the free course, but they're getting that like word of mouth support and like, yeah, I guess endorsement from someone they know, which is what really tends to move the needle. And usually there's like multiple touch points before the purchase. Like they're seeing a YouTube video they like, and then they're following you on Twitter and they're like, Oh, he says smart things there too. And so forth. Um, it's not just they like saw one content download and then converted at least not over a longer time frame. Can, can we also touch on, 
the, uh, the the social element on both the the students and the creator side. So like how students are connecting with each other, and then also how the creators are connected with each other. I know you mentioned the cohort, so uh, the thread's already been open a bit, but I just want to know more about it. Yeah, so I guess we run a uh, Teachable HQ sort of community internally, uh, and also. Uh, which is just for anyone who's a, a paying customer of Teachable can find and talk to each other there. And we'll do sort of 30 day challenges and 60 day challenges with like different steps and milestones. Cause it's a lot of work to create a course. So like one thing is just trying to get people to like mm-hmm. follow through for that, like 40 to a hundred hours before they really have something to sell and like do things to sort of test, uh, validate the market, like before they put in that hundred hours, hopefully, I guess, similarly on the instructor side, we're using a new company called circle for that, uh, integrations, tighter integrations with Teachable coming soon, um, which provides just sort of a like private forum for customers of your course and things like that. But really, I don't know, I've sometimes kind of like roll my eyes at it. But like, if you if you feel like you're part of something, you're a much better customer, like having that community feeling like you're not alone is a big Mm -hmm. part of it. And also, even just learning things like one reason, it's hard to be a self taught programmer is because you don't have anybody telling you that your problems are normal when you're learning a new thing and like that's really helpful so like having people who are also going through the same learning things and you can be like oh okay everybody gets really stuck at this section like setting up domains is hard and that just reassures you that you're like not dumb and can achieve this um in addition Mm -hmm. to like somebody actually being able to like help you with your specific issue just the like not feeling alone maybe even more so in like covid pandemic things Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you want to connect um, uh, 30 uh, like-minded people together, uh, have a university professor with a brutal <laughs> grading curve. And so everybody needs yeah, to... Yeah, that does work pretty well. Yo, you got, a, you got a, a 61, bro? Yo, this guy's a genius. Tell yeah, you I don't know if any of our instructors have tried just grading really hard and seeing if that fosters <laughs> community, but maybe I should suggest it to some of them. Uh, I, I think if they have the archetype for it, because there are there's like those whiplash teachers that are like to the point where they're the antagonist and you want to like overcome the uh, the antagonism. Uh, just don't do it the way it happened in the movie. Uh, spoiler. <laughs> so oh, another thing I'm wondering too. So actually, I, I should ask this. Um, how long uh, Teachable has been around for? Before I ask this next question, it's important that I need to know. Yeah, uh, I guess we technically started in like november of 2013 the uh founder made the original version after out of frustration teaching on new to me and emailed a bunch of their top instructors and got 10 of the top 20 to join it became a real company in sort of may of 2014 when i joined i guess moved out of side project stage actually before i, I asked that question i, I remembered what i had uh, this is why i have to chronically like write things down because you know more threads that open up so the other thing too i wanted to say before we move on about um, self-taught because I'm a, I'm a, I, I self-taught editing. And the thing that worried me, especially for the first like two or three years, part of it was imposter syndrome, which by the way, you mentioned earlier, and we will get to that because I do want to talk about that. But it was that the solutions that I had were abysmal solutions. And what I noticed was the, the longer I went on, the more afraid I was to find out I was wrong. Cause that would mean that as time, I I made more mistakes that I that could have been corrected, and then also the other thing that scared me too is the idea that the solution was beyond me. Like there are certain things, there are certain magical techniques that one can only learn if they go to uh, engineering school. Um, it's why, like as an act of humility, anytime uh, we go to our podcast conferences, um, I always will look for like a podcasting one on one course, just in case there's like some foundational building block that I never had and it's just going to completely re re uh reshape how i how i continue to do it now mind you i'm not doing too much editing these days just because i've, I've moved on to uh, hosting and being the voice but I, I still enjoy it as a as a gamer i love like 
looking for those little details and like cutting things out. It's still a lot of fun. All right, so uh, back to the other question. There, there's like a there's there's an answer to this question that's probably going to be pretty straightforward, which is like the changes once the lockdown hit, and now there's going to be changes in activity. So we can touch on that, but I wanted to look more in aggregate of like, have you seen any significant changes or milestones or trends in what people were looking into, what creators were popular at certain different times, like what what was going on in 2015 that everybody seemed to be looking into. Yeah, so I guess, I mean, so on a longer time frame, we've seen, I guess it's just kind of the, the idea of taking courses online has gotten broader acceptance. So originally it was kind of, there was a lot of like very technical courses, like how to code, how to make websites things, which I guess makes sense. You would learn on a website and then sort of small business things like drop shipping and stuff like that, or like options trading and other things that like kind of sketched me out, to be honest, and was like not grilled with uh and really i mean over time we've seen that broaden a lot to things like the you know the the nature goat doctors copper deficiency people i I don't think are like on the bleeding edge of technology technological adoption in general um so we've seen sort of like broadening into more industries there's been a lot more sort of fitness things have come on that i mean that obviously had a big spike Mm -hmm. with COVID, along with things like cooking classes and stuff like that i mean that was that was really the big change we saw in june was like clearly a lot of sort of in-person courses like things that were in-person workshops like kind of rapidly moving online so like you know our time, average time to first sale dropped like 80 percent because people were moving sort of existing businesses onto the platform rather than uh creating the business and signing up for teachable at the same time one thing that i thought was interesting is even as sort of things open back up again most of those people seem to be at least keeping online as a component uh like, I don't know if they would have switched over if there wasn't the forcing function, but now even if they're going back to doing in-person cooking classes and so forth too, they are still keeping kind of an online thing. Just the, you know, getting paid for a course you made three months ago mm-hmm. when you didn't do any incremental work is a fantastic addictive feeling that's kind of hard to put down again, I think, once you've had it once. Like waking up and discovering you made money while you sleep is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, because um, uh, scaling is like one of the key terms that we're always brought up and it manifests in different ways. And, and one of them is a lot of the people that I've noticed, or sorry, like a lot of the dropshippers and a lot of the e-commerce experts, they, they tend to get weary of the one-on-one coaching unless they're charging like an exuberant amount of money. They want to know that what they're doing always has more of like an exponential uh, return on it. If I'm going to put this amount of energy teaching one person, it's going to cost them a lot of money to make up for the potential amount of money I can make if I just put a lesson out and it's, and it's, and it's disseminated and it reaches 20, 50 people. Yeah, I think that the one-on-one stuff works really well, especially early on, because it both like gets you people to endorse your course or educational thing later. Like this guy knows what he's talking True. about. He helped me a lot. And that helps you like identify common patterns of like, okay, I talked to 10 people, eight of them had this problem. Like this is absolutely going in the course and like probably in bold. But once you've done like 200, I can see that getting kind of tedious, sort of helping people with the like same things over and over again. That's a really good point too. Um if you start with the with one-on-ones and teaching people uh, in lower scale, it gives people an opportunity to identify uh, how they do it and then how they would uh, magnify that. Uh, I, I mean, it's it's a thought that's like come and gone, but it's 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 important for you to it's important to have been reiterated. So uh, yeah, I'm taking that one to the bank. Overall, like, have you have you guys? I mean, I because I, I know there's a podcast and there's a blog, so there's probably some answers to this. But uh, has your company identified some like the key do's and don'ts? for 
what creators can do to or what the creators should be avoiding. I know, you know, we don't want to dwell too much on negativity, but I do love hearing like what are some of the major screw-ups that people have uh, encountered. Yeah, I mean, a really big one that we kind of hammer all the time, and I'm sure it's brought up a lot here, is like charge a lot or probably charge more than you're expecting. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to lower prices than raise prices, but also like your your $5 price point customers are going to suck. As a rule, like we get most of our tickets from people, like they, they require the most hand-holding. Often they'll have the highest expectations. Uh like starting at like a seventy or a hundred dollar price point for a course will often result in like not just because you have one twentieth the customers that you would if you charge five dollars, but even on like a per customer basis, a lot less work. Um, sometimes it's just because people expect things to be like handed to them if they're coming in really cheap. Um, other than that, I would say like going broad too early. Like basics of yoga is like a pretty well trod space there's lots of youtube videos mm-hmm. on it i mean if you have some differentiator that people want to learn from you specifically sure but like doing yoga for like i don't know injured cyclists or something like that like find like you can go start start mm-hmm. very narrow and then go broad like you want to i don't know there's some famous quote that i think was given to airbnb when they were really starting is like you want a hundred people who love you not like a million people who think you're kind of neat and i think that holds like that, that's true for mm-hmm. startups but i think that also holds really well for courses like early on you want people who are gonna like go tell their friends you won't believe this cool stuff i learned from noah in his course um and who will tell you the stuff that's confusing rather than people who are like somewhat interested so like either something you know with a pressing problem people want to solve or something like very specific uh, so you can make sure that's super tailored. And then you can make 10 more courses that are more generic afterwards. But like starting with that narrow focus tends to work a lot better. You, you, you use yourself as an example there. Do you have any courses? Not right now. I'm, yeah. Okay. This is, is it a conflict of interest? Uh, no, I think people would be, I mean, I have courses where I've tested out all of our features. I, I don't think it, it would be encouraged. The company would be thrilled if I was making courses for sure. Okay. I, I have sold ebooks and so forth in the distant past. That was kind of my start in online businesses 10 or 12 years ago or 15 years ago now. Oh, wow. So you, you've been in this space for some time. So it's, it blows my mind, like some of the people, especially in the dropshipping side where, you know, they're, they've become masters of their craft. And I'm like, well, have you been in this for like 10 years? And kids are like, no, I've been like three years. I got my own house. I'm like, oh. <laughs> uh, I, love, I love them to death. And and like we, we established earlier on is it, it's gotten to the point now where uh, anyone, anyone can make their money um, if they if they're motivated to it. So it, it comes down to they 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 knew what they were doing, they knew what they wanted, they went for it. Um, and I suppose they didn't have a kid yet of their own, so that does <laughs> probably helps out too. Not hurt. Yeah. yeah. All right, so we're uh, we're closing in on like the 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 final ten minutes of uh, of this recording. So we're gonna like decompress and do some mindset stuff because um, you said earlier on about. Uh, you, you briefly said imposter syndrome. And I also know that like it's brought up on say the Instagram. So to my recollection and my listeners will have to forgive me, my recollection does uh, n- not scale very well, but how would you, uh, how would you characterize imposter syndrome? I bet most people experience it, but they maybe didn't hear the term for it. I mean, it's, it's feeling like you're an imposter. So like feeling like everyone else in your space are doing this thing you're trying to do, like, knows what's going on is like much more capable has like a better handle on it and you're just kind of faking it until you make it is sort of the feeling i would say mm-hmm. characterized most with it um so like for our creators it's often like i'm not an expert is a big thing that like people have to get over or like have to accept that like almost everyone is an expert to someone else in certain fields like you don't have to know that much more 
probably there's no like national academy of copper deficiency and miniature goat people who's like rewarding it and so forth like it's not really a title necessarily mm-hmm. that other people put on you uh for myself personally i mean it was a lot around programming i'm relatively young i started being a cto when i was 24 or something like that so it's been a while being like real vague about my age with employees and then realizing that they were also being real vague about their age because they were both very young yeah. uh and not having the sort of like formal comp sci education so i don't know it's like I don't know, it's an easy trap to fall into is you're like, you blame yourself. You're just like, ah, well, I'm just faking it. So of course I don't know this. Like I can never be good at podcast editing or programming. Yeah, yeah like, exactly. I'm not cut out for it. And I don't know, over time you realize that everybody's winging it more or less to some degree. Yeah, because that's what I was saying earlier too, right? How about like uh, I would, the longer I would go on, the more scared I was to learn the lessons that um, might even uh, cost me it. Uh, for me, the the thing that helped turn it around was this one client. Um, he, he, he got us together to do a test episode Uh, And the host was so nervous, she got drunk. And so I had to take her drunken track and make her sound not drunk. And I did. And he sends me back word for word, duck, comma, you're good. (laughs) And, uh, and and I took that and I put that on my, uh, on my, on my website as like one of my actual testimonials. And since that point, it still happens, but that helped, that went a long way, I'll say. And and yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I've always been okay with like telling people how, how old I am. I'm 31. I know I said that before. Uh, I think for, for me, I feel like I'm doing people a favor when I say that because a lot of the people that I've connected with, especially through this show, they are in their, in their 20s. I, I guess part of it is I wanted to let people know it's not too late. 30s, not that bad. 30s are like your 20s as long as you're willing to course correct. So they can still be really good, but you also don't have the same luxuries that you did when you're in your energized 20s. Yeah, I think a big part of me is just it's like not essentializing it. Like I make stupid mistakes all the time. I have like embarrassing holes in my knowledge, but like that's okay. It doesn't mean that I'm a, a faker overall. Everybody has holes in their knowledge and you know, I have weird depth of expertise in places other people's own and so forth. Mm-hmm. And you know, and these days for people who are like, you know, they they want to observe a community and like absorb knowledge, but they don't necessarily want to also contribute. You know, Facebook groups are a great place to start. Uh, there's a couple of like different podcast editing groups that I that I'm a part of and then it's it's kind of like what with you and GitHub is that if I if I'm keen on the understanding something, I don't even have to ask the question. All I have to do is search for that term, and there are other conversations that other people have had. So I remember vividly reading like Toby, the CEO of Shopify, who was still active committing code in 2013, 2014, which is impressive to me. Like just reading discussions of him with other people about why they took some approach and being like, I never would have thought of that, but was super valuable for my like development, and even just seeing like how. People in those groups like handle disagreements and differences of opinion and so forth can be super useful because often there's not a right way. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fair too, uh, especially because, well, I mean, emotionality can significantly impact quality of work. Like if people don't don't resolve something and then it just festers and it becomes a seed, then it grows, and the next thing you know, a uh, website crashes or or I accidentally, in my case, I accidentally up- uploaded a different show onto somebody else's uh, platform. It was it was scheduled, so it wasn't released, but that was like the most absurd mistake I've ever made in my life. So. Yeah, like a year ago, I got asked to take down a video from one school, and instead I accidentally made that every video on the platform. <laughs> <laughs> Which just seemed like a very passive-aggressive response to the customer. of like, oh, you want this down? All right, what if it's every? I didn't know. I didn't know that could happen. Although uh, there was the, the closest thing I think, I, I think I've ever seen something like that happen where... Um, every video in a community was renamed to one title. It was like, uh, it was like this, it was from Smash Brothers where every, 
every single video was these two, was this one fight. Those guys became notorious for it, even though they had nothing to do with it. So one of the things I had to uh, encourage my new uh, digital producer is that, you know, don't be afraid to make mistakes, but do be afraid to make boring mistakes. If you're going to make mistakes, you might as well make hilarious ones that you can look back on and and uh, and laugh about. Yeah. No, yeah, we've started building a list early on of stupid things we've done that no one has been fired for, which I think <laughs> has been good for sort of encouraging people later on. And it's a nice thing to think about when you make one of the stupid mistakes. It's like, ah, one for the list. Uh, uh, would you care to share one more with us before we move on to the next question? Uh, so I guess when we first launched the new system for like three or four hours, we were charging, we would tell people the right amount of money that we were going to charge you if you're using PayPal, but then we would just charge you a dollar no matter what. We just like hard coded in a test value. I mean, we were pretty small then, so it wasn't a huge order value overall, but still a fairly embarrassing mistake. Oh, yeah. Some people got good returns on that. I assume that like oh, yeah. they paid for it. He's like, all right. Yeah, we, we paid out all the, we made all the creators whole. Some people got a phenomenal deal on whatever courses they were buying on launch day unexpectedly. I was uh, I was looking at your YouTube before we, uh, we got on, like maybe like an hour or two before uh, we got to recording. And this is like brand new. It's like the, uh, the creator's mind, uh, colon fear. I know this is more like the on the front end side and you're a CTO, but you know, the first person from Teach what we're talking to. So uh, can you speak to what's the like what what this is about and what it's uh, trying to achieve for people? I mean, I think this is really this kind of goes back to the imposter syndrome thing. It's just trying to it's pretty sure I saw this one like a week ago. This is like it's got sort of creators talking about places where they felt scared, but then also kind of on the student side, uh like you were both like it's both natural to be afraid when you're like putting yourself out there as an expert or really any content into the world because you know people may make fun of you and that sucks and that's scary but that's like normal and everyone feels it and then you're also like by teaching that hopefully you're helping other people like minimize their own fears and get through that i mean really we've discovered in addition to just like chunk of actual work that is creating a course like so much of it is the psychological aspect of like convincing yourself you can do this and you have things of value to offer the world knowledge yeah yeah i i it's a it's a whole thing to to unravel and like where uh teasing and, and making fun of people fits into society in a healthy way and for me i tend to look at it as like a drug because it is a chemical manipulation one person manipulates another person's chemicals for a gain and you know we can even make fun of ourselves too right we're we're dealing with our own chemicals to me i i put it in the same camp as like smoking a cigarette or or having a soda or coffee in in moderation or in a way that's healthy it could be it could be good it could be a nice release and you know people go to comedy clubs to get that that catharsis and so it can be uh, very helpful but like with all drugs it can become addictive people can become dependent on it and they can harm themselves in the long run and not realize it because the harm isn't in that moment like one cigarette doesn't harm you you get you know you, you smoke uh, tens of uh, thousands of them over the course of your life you know good luck I got all right. I got one more uh, question for you. Uh, another just like fun mindset one, and then we're gonna get you on Addy. So this is another one from the Instagram. Uh, it's forgive me my pronunciation. I will try, but maybe I will succeed. Maybe I won't. It's a ikigai. Um, it's gonna be hard to like characterize. So for the for people uh, look it up. It's it's four circles, and they're Venn diagramming each other. Um, and in each one, there's title there's passion there's purpose there's vocation there's profession and then connecting each of those one to one are what we love what we're good at what we can be paid for and what the world needs and so it's the ikigai is finding that sweet spot between all of these now i thought about it before i came on and podcasting pretty much nailed all of it i will say that like 
as as far as passion is concerned, um, I do have a deeper passion for other things, uh, things that start with Z and end in Elda, but it was about the sweet spot. So it, yeah. it, it fit all four of those um, better than anything else I can think of. And I'm just curious if you've had a t- chance to kind of consider that for yourself and, you know, where do you think your, your Ikigai is? Yeah. I mean, I guess my more narrow one would probably be programming. I genuinely really enjoy it. I find it a lot of fun, but then the sort of broader one is, I guess, helping people, which is in kind of the intersection of those two teachable. I was at a fintech company that does not need to be named uh, pre-teachable, and I spent most of my time just making forms uh, where you stated that you had at least $10 million so that you were allowed to use the website. And I don't know, I couldn't get really that excited about helping those people, but seeing being able to help sort of like everyday people, especially like leave jobs they hate and teach things they're passionate about is what like motivates me to get going every day and making websites is cool yeah and uh what was it the the copper goat doctors you brought them up a couple of times that's that that is a class right you were just pulling that, that out of the okay class, yeah yeah I, it, it can be a lot more fulfilling to know that the that those people who um they're not exactly like you know service by very many industries to know that they have something that can give them a huge boost and to help other people who may not discover it's it's niche but someone's gonna fit into it so yeah all right no so um yeah that's uh that's all we're gonna do today uh i'm i'm really grateful for your time uh our wrap-up question is always the same it's if you have any final words of wisdom perhaps an answer to a question i didn't ask uh i welcome you to share it and then let people know what they should do to get and get engaged in teachable and if they want to reach out to you if uh if you're so inclined uh take it away Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess we kind of touched on it on the imposter syndrome stuff, but really just I would say go for it. Everybody's winging it. Nobody really knows, has that much confidence that what they're doing is going to work out. Uh, If you want to get in touch with me, feel free to hit me up on Twitter. I'm no prior. I think my email's on my website, but it's noatnoprior.com for Teachable. Uh, There's a free trial. Feel free to sign up on the teachable.com. Or if you have specific questions, also feel free to email me and I'll answer them or direct you to somebody who can give a better answer if i don't know all right uh terrific well uh listeners uh, thank you for our for joining us on our uh, completely unintentional uh education week it's been a blast there's a lot of opportunities that have been uh, opened up here and a lot of things to think about so i know that a lot of the people that i've talked to they're also teaching too and so it's not going to take very long for you the listener to get into a position where you can teach something because chances are you probably could and you probably should so with that uh thank you once again and we will check in soon thanks for listening you might have found this show on many number of platforms apple podcasts spotify google play stitcher or right here on debutify whatever the case if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive please take a few moments to leave a review on apple podcasts or wherever you think is best We also want to hear from you, so whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next.